Thank you very much, Nigel, and thanks everybody who was at my last lecture who will come back here for the first time. I won't reprise my last lecture. It was a broad framework of, in a sense, a framework of what's been learned over the last 20 or 25 years. Today, I'm going to focus in on one region, Africa. And I note that I'm focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. I sort of felt that was the assignment we were given. I know some people are keen to talk about North Africa, particularly about there in recent weeks. We can certainly do that in the discussion period, and I'd be happy to get into that. I think uh, Western support for democracy in Africa is a relatively neglected subject. And those of you in the room who are students, particularly uh, postgraduates looking for areas to research, I think there are a wealth of topics domain that have been almost untouched by researchers. And so I commend the subject to you, to you and hope I can at least provide some thoughts that might stimulate you. I'd like once again to thank the Rothermere Institute for the invitation to give these lectures, and once again, Nuffield College for hosting me in particular. Lawrence Whitehead, who is here today, who is the godfather of my visit here. I don't think the godfather is officially in his title, but uh, it's uh, certainly been the most benevolent sort of godfather for my various days at Oxford over the last four years. A few weeks ago, while I was preparing this lecture, I was invited to a meeting at the White House of the National Security Council staff to talk about the situation in Cote d'Ivoire. And I was very struck. The purpose of the meeting was to review what the U.S. government had been doing in the standoff uh, between the two uh, leaders uh, there, or claimants. And I was struck listening at the meeting by how seriously they were, they, uh, the U.S. government present in the room, taking the challenge of trying to support what looked like a, which might be a possibly a democratic outcome in Cote d'Ivoire. They went through a long list of actions they had taken. They started by talking in the meeting about President Obama's speech in Accra uh, in 2009 and his sincere commitment to the principle. And they went over that several times. Then they talked about how they'd been coordinating with Sarkozy, with the United Nations, <clears throat> the European Union, the African Union, the South African government, the Sudanese government, the Nigerian government, and so forth. And they'd been searching hard for a positive resolution of the standoff. And it made me wonder how to fit this somewhat impressive display of apparent commitment to a democratic outcome in a relatively small country that most people don't pay that much attention to. Uh, raised some questions in my mind. Uh, I didn't know I was preparing this lecture at the time. It was a handy meeting. It was which is, how typical or exceptional is a case like that? Is this a high water mark, a low water mark? Is the West really interested in democracy in Cote d'Ivoire? Or is this meaning sideshow, or is it political theater of one type or another? And if the West, so to speak, is, is interested, why? And we could also ask where, whether it will be able to, in fact, play a useful role in resolving the standoff. So these are just some initial <clears throat> sort of framing questions to set out what I'd like to try to do a bit in this lecture, which is to give a broad account of Western policy as it relates to democracy in Africa over the last 20 years. And I hope I can provide at least some perspective on it, allow us to start answering some of those questions. I'm going to start by looking at the patterns of democratic change in Africa in the 1990s, and then describe the place of democracy support and larger Western policies in the continent in those same years. And then I'm going to do the same with this decade, again outlining the overall political situation in the continent, and then look at the evolution of Western policy. And then I'm going to try to conclude by putting these questions into some comparative perspective trying to look at the question of whether and how Western democracy support in Africa is similar or different 
to related policies in other regions of the world, how exceptional or exceptionalist is, is African policy. Now, of course, the topic's unreasonably broad. So forgive me if I don't go deeply into specific cases, either country cases or thematic areas that you'd like to see more fully explored. Uh, that reflects both the broad mandate that I tried to take on for this lecture and also, I would say, the thinness of my knowledge about the subject, which is certainly broader than the deep. I will not differentiate that much between U.S. and European policy, partly for lack of time, and partly also because I think there's less difference uh, than some people may think, that the similarities are generally greater than the differences, although we can talk about that, of course, it depends on the country and so forth. And I would say in advance that those of you who are looking either for a green condemnation of folly and hypocrisy of the West in Africa of the last 20 years, or a ringing endorsement of the, the noble endeavor of the West trying to support democracy and that they're likely to be disappointed. There's certainly plenty of folly and hypocrisy to go around, and there are a few things worth praising, but those of you who know my work know I'm more interested in the complexities and the subtleties of the subject than just diving down towards one pole or the other. Uh, although, it's fair to be so in this vision period. Let's have at it. I think a convincing case can certainly be made for one of those two poles. Now, I'm drawing on three, three or four sources of knowledge in this lecture. First, I've taken part in four or five countries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa in democracy programs over the years, society work, election work, and so forth. I've also carried out really extensive research in four or five countries about Western democracy programs in them. And then third, taking take, take part in a lot of meetings in Washington, some of London, some of the Nordic countries, Germany about set policies, and fourth, some desk research as well. So, as I said, on the democracy promotion side, there's not all that much written. Okay, let's start with the 1990s, <clears throat> and I'll be fairly telegraphic because I think that some of this is well known to you, and some of this is, uh, can at least be framed. The sudden wave of electoral transitions in Africa in the 1990s, which was a wave that affected well over half the countries on the continent, came as a surprise. Few, if any, experts had predicted in five years before. Political change has been announced. So almost always be surprised by the political experts. And just as the third wave generally uh, was a surprise. In retrospect, I'd say the causes of it, the causes are always clear in retrospect, but in retrospect, the causes are relatively clear. First and foremost, it was an internal process of change and exhaustion of a set of post-colonial leaders who kind of run out of steam. They were aging. Uh, they were failing to deliver their goods to the people in such a sustained way that they had run out of money to shore up key co-opted sectors, run out of legitimacy, um, both ideological and otherwise, and were basically losing their grip. This was taking place in a suddenly an end of Cold War framework in which neither the Soviet Union nor the United States was any longer so willing to prop up governments that had been useful to it in the 1970s and 80s. And furthermore, of course, the international context of the contagion in Central and Eastern Europe in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union did have effects on the country. And I remember people vividly in the early 1990s in various African capitals citing the fall of Dutch as a case that really made an impression on now, the democratic wave created many expectations in sub-Saharan Africa, in some ways an echo of the post-colonial enthusiasm of the 1950s and early 1960s. With regard to outcomes in that first decade, by the end of the decade, the, uh, I think you can see that the trajectory had broken apart into three parts. And what's, what's striking is we have a strong overall comparative framework for African politics, which is the neo-patrimonial idea that some analysts have 
quote another book rather than Van der Waal, America's book, 1994. And you tend to think of actual politics as having you know, common analytic growth. But what's striking is, although I agree with that umbrella, I think it's a powerful analysis, what's actually striking is the diversity of the political outcomes in Africa compared to, say, Latin America, the Arab world, at least parts of South Asia, parts of the former Soviet Union. And what actually strikes uh, in the outside observer is that there is a man of African politics rather than the similarity, despite the fact that neopatrimonialism is a powerful explanation. So by the end of the first decade, you had a small but not insignificant set of countries which had made genuine progress towards democratic rule, or at least towards pluralistic political systems in which multi-partyism was starting to be somewhat felt, and in which political participation was significant, and political and civil rights were at least somewhat respected. These included South Africa, Ghana, Namibia, Benin, Mali, Cape Verde, Ghana, and so forth. Second, you had a set of countries where electoral transitions had been stirred up and in some ways occurred, but had really failed to uproot entrenched authoritarian structures and leaders. Places like Gabon, Togo, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, and so forth. Then you had third, a smaller but very damaging set of cases in which political pluralism had degenerated into violent conflicts. Rwanda, Burundi, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Somalia, and so forth. So you had these three sets of cases, like I say, which were highly contrasting. And then you had a few other important cases of great uncertainty in which it was not yet really clear where the country was headed. I think in particular of Nigeria, because by the end of the 1990s, it seemed as though it might be starting off to something like a democratic transition with the death of the blockchain. Um, but that yet was really quite uncertain in its trajectory. And so by the end of the decade, this very mixed outcome produced the grounds for what at that time crystallized as a classic half-empty, half-full debate about the state of democracy in Africa. If you go back and look at the review articles of the late 1990s on African politics, that's the tenor of the discussion, half-empty versus half-full. Um, but I would say that despite all of the limitations of the way, which are certainly considerable compared to many people's expectations, we can say that there really had been a change by the end of the decade in terms of people's both within the region and outside of assuming that authoritarianism was the fate of, of modern Africa. And there was you know, a great deal of greater seriousness about elections in the region, problematic that many elections were, and, and, and of only limited significance in a number of places. But there was a great deal more seriousness about multi-party elections. There was a great opening up of space for civil society, you know, different types of sort of Western confused with funding, but also more indigenous forms. There was much greater respect for political and civil rights than in the 1970s and 80s, and in particular, much more freedom of expression. And in that decade, if we had to choose one case that was in some ways emblematic, of course it was South Africa, which garnered so much attention both in the region and particularly in the West. And there was this really sparkling resonance to the South African case, but we have to note that it was, uh, I'm always struck by this in Washington where it's brought up again, is that it was emblematic, but in some ways the most atypical African transition. Atypical both because of the nature of the regime in South Africa, which was almost sui generis. And also because of the a number of the elements of the transition, uh, both the role of Nelson Mandela, the role of the ANC, and so forth. So South Africa was both emblematic, but in some ways actually rather atypical. Uh, but it's invoked again and again uh, as, as in some ways the, the moment of the next In that framework, Western democracy promotion took place in those years. 
And what did it consist of? Probably speaking, the Western donor actors, and I'm speaking with a broad brush, thinking with a broad brush here, tried to encourage the electoral trend. And they did so in a number of ways. There was a lot of use of political conditionality assistance in Africa in those years. And many examples of this. France, for example, threatened uh, President Karakou of Benin with a cutoff of his assistance that he didn't respect in 1990. The decisions of this country's national conference in 1990 was just one of many examples of such imposition of aid conditionality. The Paris Club donors set conditions on Kenya, which led President Moy to set special elections in 1992. There was a cutoff of assistance in response to coups, like in Burundi in 1993, or after a move to annul elections in Nigeria, also in 1993. So there was the use of the aid conditionality tool. Western leaders often praised democratic progress and criticized its, its recession. Elected leaders greeted with warm diplomatic receptions and visits. In 1990, for example, hard to recall now, but both Francois Mitterrand and Douglas Hurd gave speeches uh, emphasizing the importance of democracy in Africa, both French foreign policy and British foreign policy. Third, Western governments added democracy and rights to the regional frameworks that they were developing for the region. The Lomé Accord in the 1990s is a prime example. Fourth, Western donors began to establish the, the typical range of democracy assistance programs in many African countries. This was one part of the expansion of democracy assistance generally. So we saw the very reasonable proliferation of programs, strengthened parliaments, help electoral administration, support NGOs, work with independent media, and so forth down the line of the standard template. By the end of the decade, it's still only about one to two hundred million dollars uh, a year of such assistance, but nevertheless, given that assistance is not that expensive for the most part, this was a significant number of activities. Why did Western governments adopt at least a somewhat pro-democratic line to region well, the simple answer is that they didn't have, in many cases, much reason not to. It was rather an inexpensive policy in the sense of the overall balance of interest. Because in many cases, uh, the Western governments had few countervailing interests. And so there wasn't any particular economic or security imperative to do otherwise. In addition to that, they were frustrated by poor governance in a number of African countries. And they had come around to the view that it was poor governance, and by extension, in some cases, a lack of democratic governance that was undermining the chance for African development. Uh, relatively well-known World Bank report of the late 1980s, the first major World Bank report of governance, was a result of this accumulated frustration in working with a number of African governments. Third, Western governments were caught up in the post-Cold War enthusiasm about democracy promotion and looking to spread this rhetorical framework everywhere. Africa was part of the picture and seemed to be joining the trend. Fourth, as I mentioned, South Africa in particular caught the Western imagination. And there was this rush, I remember it, this was actually a fairly raw and shameless rush to take credit. <laughs> I had this sort of funny experience in 1990 that I was visiting a number of capitals, so in the capital, I started in Germany, and there some journalists took me aside and said, you know, don't listen to what anybody else says. We had the real relationship with the agencies, and we were the ones that really were with them. And I went from there to Stockholm, and somebody related to Stockholm after dinner with me said, don't let anybody else fool you. <laughs> we're the ones with the ANC. And then I went from there to the Hague. And the Dutch told me, you know, you know, who was really with the ANC? <laughs> and so forth. I once actually asked a senior, uh, even in Washington, which 
really had no grounds for this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I once actually had a conversation with the senior ANC official a few years later, and I said, who was your mentor? And he thought about it for a while, and he said, I said, you seem to be hesitating. Okay, I can't decide if it was the Chinese Communist Party or the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, they were there early. And they used to, you know, they really were. Uh, so, so these things were complicated. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of credit to about that. But this Western embrace of uh, the pro-democratic line in Africa was a partial line, partial embrace. Because first of all, the initial push on elections was often not followed up with when it didn't go well. A lot of the elections were, were startling and surprising and so forth, but they didn't actually, as I mentioned, get to the core power structures in many of the countries. And Western governments imposing aid conditionality often stopped at the holding of the election and didn't really follow it through. And aid conditionality proved to be a weak tool. Why? Well, for two basic reasons. One, it's hard to get unity among donors uh, when you're trying to impose aid conditionality because you've got a lot of donors involved in relationships and reasons. It's hard to get everybody on board. And secondly, if you really impose aid conditionality on a poor country, people might starve to death. <clears throat> and democracy by starvation is not possible policy. Uh, <clears throat> and so, Dr. wrote an op-ed that was called Democracy by Starvation, yet it was in the title. Um, but it was about the conflict between the democratic impulse to impose aid conditionality and the reality of actually cutting off aid in countries facing military crisis. So pushing on elections was there, but it was obviously only at best of the start. <clears throat> Moreover, you had the outbreak of civil conflicts, particularly Rwanda Burundi, were horrifying and really gave pause to the, the, the embrace of the democracy agenda uh, among a number of policymakers, and particularly Rwanda, where there were some bitter internal discussions. I remember both in London about whether or not the move to elections, multi parties in Rwanda could be blamed for the genocide. That was a nasty debate, pleasant, and it was a serious one. But it gave pause, I would say. Thirdly, uh, there was the rise, you'll remember, the second half of the 1990s of what were called African new leaders, who were actually semi-authoritarian leaders who were relatively serious about economic development in the countries, yeah, like in Uganda, uh, as well as in Ethiopia, a few other places. And this was very important to uh, Western capitals. And, and faced with a choice between a shaky democratic government with uncertain economic tensions and a sort of stalwart you know, follower of the world bank agenda in a number of countries, they, they were happy to choose the latter. And this undercut the democracy agenda as well. In addition, you had oil in the region of these two places, particularly Nigeria, which, of course, the most important country in some ways in policy terms for the West, which led to soft pedal the democracy line in Nigeria. And he still had the post-colonial ties, the old friendships, both British and French, but also the Portuguese and others, and Americans with the neo-imperial colonial ties to the region, if you will, that meant old relationships between leaders and hunting trips together by various presidents, and that kind of thing was kind of undercut the agenda as well. This decade, the state of democracy in Africa this decade. What's interesting is that the half-full, half-empty paradigm that emerged in the late 1990s, it's still there today. It's exactly what the debate is over Africa. I see over here we have Mark Platner, who's the editor of the journal of Democracy. He's thinking to himself, the next issue that does special, a special issue on Africa that he'll run will probably be called Half-Full, Half-Empty in Africa. Because that's still where it is. There's still uh, a lot of bad news and some good news. What kind of bad news? 
Compared to 2000, there's a decline in the number of electoral democracies in Africa, superficially, but diligently measured by freedom times. Secondly, there are many cases of civil conflict in this decade. You have the genuinely horrifying, and there's no other word for it, example of the democratic public conflict in this decade. People estimate over 500 people have been killed in the last 150 years. So you have just shocking levels of violence and political instability in countries that have been attempting democratization. Third, you have violence after many elections. There's been a, a surge of post-electoral violence in Africa, particularly Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, Zimbabwe, which is simply disturbing. You have a lot of continued authoritarianism. You still have some genuinely terrible leaders uh, in Africa who are taking their countries nowhere. You have a question of the democratic model, and of course the flirtation with the Chinese relationship, if you will, the Chinese model, uh, which didn't exist 10 years ago. And mostly the success stories are the smaller states. If you take the five most populous states in Africa, which the population added together to be a very significant proportion of the African population, uh, which would be South Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Congo, and Tanzania, four of those countries uh, are not democracies. You try to give Nigeria the benefit of the doubt, but you have to stretch. And so four of the five most popular countries are not. Uh, and so one has to, just taking total population into account, reflect on the fact that the majority of us are still not living even superficially electoral democracy. And there have been 10 military coups since 2000 as well. There's a lot of bad news in this country. Yet there's also good news. Uh, about one third of African states, somewhere between 12 and 18 African states, are making real progress. And they're the subject of an interesting recent book by Stephen Radwick about uh, the success stories of Africa, uh, which I would like to mention, which I think is significant. There are a rising number of peaceful handovers of power in Africa, something that was rarely seen in the 1970s and 80s, even in the 1990s. You have term limits that are starting to have some traction in a number of countries where violating constitutional limits on presidential terms is starting to be harder to do, in some cases constraining leaders. You have African publics who are just more clearly engaged in public life and political participation than ever before in these half of countries. So it's a very significant You have some regional embrace of the, the democratic norm for example, the 2007 African Charter you see ECOWAS, and you see the African Union, and others trying to you know, flirt with and, and deal with this idea of the regional North-West democracy, so that in a case like Central Africa, like Cote d'Ivoire, uh, you have uh, a regional effort to try to uphold the democratic principle. And compared, for example, to the Arab world, or even many parts of Asia, Comparatively, Africa is doing that better by democracy, particularly given its difficult socioeconomic situation. What's the place of Western democracy promotion in, in the context of this decade? Well, the basic forms of democracy support that I described have continued. There's a continuing emphasis on supporting elections, and some of those efforts are huge. If you look at how much Western donors, particularly the different European donors in the European Union, have invested in the elections of Congo for the last few months, it's an astonishing It's been a tremendous effort to support the process against all of them. There has been diplomatic reactions to coups, like in Niger. States in Europe reacting better to uh, coups by the people of the diplomatic criticism and so forth. 
there's actually been a steady increase in democracy assistance from 100 to 200 million dollars a year up over 500 million dollars a year. Pretty significant, but still only a minor percentage of overall development assistance to the region. But you now have many programs in many countries, so that if you go to most of the countries in the region, well over half of them, you will find most of the political sectors, public sectors, you know, sort of penetrated by Western assistance. So if you look at the experience of Kenya, just to take one example, in this region, go back and look at the Kenyan political parties from the start of this decade, extensive work with Western actors, with Kenyan parties, party strengthening, party dialogue, with you know, the entire range of organized civil society in Kenya, coalition movement, with media, uh, a great deal of consultation with the government in terms of strengthening corruption, power, and so forth. Every major area of Kenyan political life. Uh, has been the subject of pretty significant assistance by multiple Western actors. And that's true for 10, 20, at least 25 countries in the region. And particularly in some of the post-conflict rebuilding cases like Liberia, Sierra Leone, that are also to some extent attempted post-conflict democratic reconstruction cases, you have really extension, extensive adoption of these cases by some Western governments, the British government, of course, deeply involved in Sierra Leone, to some extent Liberia, as well as a number of other donors. And then finally, you have cooperation between some of the Western governments and Western multilateral based multilateral organizations with African multilateral organizations trying to find common ground and reaching norms At the same time that one could argue that democracy promotion is actually sort of increasing in this decade, so too are the countervailing interests and so too is the diminution of an overall diplomatic emphasis on democracy. Because what's really striking in this decade is that Africa is entering some of the big problems that have caused the United States and a number of European powers to downplay democracy in other parts of the world. So of course, you have the rise of the counterterrorism agenda, the Western counterterrorism agenda in Africa, with the usual tensions that it produces between democratic norms, both in terms of the kinds of behaviors that it supports, or activities by African police and intelligence services in terms of how they treat their citizens, and also in terms of Western friendships with particular leaders who are helpful, quote, on counterterrorism aims and therefore uh, get soft treatment when it comes to their political shortcomings. That's certainly the case with the Ethiopian government, which has benefited from fairly soft US touch, despite shortcomings, but also been true of Uganda, Kenya, Mauritania, and elsewhere. So the rise of the sort of the concern uh, about Islamic radicalism, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, is bringing the dangers of Western counterterrorism policy in terms of its relationship to democracy deeply in African policy. Secondly, the rise in oil prices in this decade and increased concern among major Western oil importers about reliable supplies has raised up the contradiction between oil and democracy policies to a high degree. In Angola, for example, you see the United States giving trade preferences early in this decade to a government which is clearly fully short of the criteria in the trade preference law uh, on the pluralism of human rights. Hillary Clinton going to Angola two years ago and signing a strategic partnership dialogue with the government clearly violates most of the rights that she speaks eloquently about elsewhere. Nigeria, you see a continued soft approach toward the government which uh, has fallen short, particularly the 2007 election, which was a big disappointment in terms of international standards about elections. No real price to pay for a Nigerian government that was a lot of oil. 
Gabon, again, suddenly a minor oil power, suddenly what should have been last being surprisingly nice, or perhaps not so surprisingly democratic leader. So counterterrorism, oil. And third, there's the continued, as we saw with the new leaders in the 1990s, there's a continued proclivity on the part of Western governments to go ahead and embrace leaders who seem to be serious about development, even if they're strangling political rights at home. Now, or at least strangling political rights and the possibility of democracy. The desire that the sort of the hunger among Western governments to see stability in some places still outweighs, one could argue possibly for good reason, the desire for democracy. The key, key case of this, of course, is Rwanda. Kagame holds out to Western donors and Western diplomats the vision of a stabilized world, which is not democratic, but is, is far from horror as before. And he has become an example of the sort of later generation uh, new leaders. And post-colonial ties are still important and still tend to work against the democratic agenda. Uh, both France and Britain, and again, Portugal to a much lesser extent, still maintain cozy ties with certain business elites, authoritarian leaders, or hangers on power circles in different capitals uh, that tend to work against this. And fifth, of course, the competition with China is stepping up considerably. It's serious because they have the paper we read about. There's an enormous potential investment by China and Zimbabwe. Uh, huge. And we see it in Angola, Zimbabwe, Zambia, a number of other countries where China comes in with its usual different approach. So by the end of this decade now, we're in a very mixed picture. We have the United States and Europe continuing to take the side of the some extensive engagement. But the exceptions are growing, and the countervailing forces against such a policy are, I would say, growing stronger than is the impetus towards it. And just to pause on one country, I think Nigeria, because it was important, is worth just a second, slightly further close, which is that um, both the United States and Britain, which are the two Western powers which have been active in all political life, have been on one level trying to help Nigeria democracy. The DFID, the UK Department for International Development, has what must be one of its largest, they call them economic democracy programs in Nigeria. Subject of considerable thought, study, funding uh, by the FID, for uh, some elections, society strengthening, parliamentary work, and so forth. Working in partnership both with the European Union, with the UN, with USAID, all of whom are working in most of the across the spectrum in, in Nigerian politics on democracy assistance and support. Yet at the diplomatic level, as I said, you see the, the soft touch with uh, Nigeria's democratic failures with. Uh, quite a bit of feckless behavior in terms of the elections in 2007 and also bad political intentions. And so you see, you know, in Nigeria built together, you know, terrorism concerns, oil concerns, other security concerns, regional issues, yet also a policy of supporting democracy. It's all there in that country. That country alone embodies all of the contradictions that makes the policy. So Western democracy promotion towards Africa in this decade is one part of the larger, somewhat unexpected picture. I mentioned last week, if you look at the broader global picture, which is at the start of this decade, we thought we were headed towards more democracy in the world, a sort of continuing deepening embrace of the norm by Western governments and multilateral actors. But this decade has seen this surprising downturn in Africa, as it embodies this, the stalling of democratic momentum, a rise of countervailing interests, 
new rivals on the international scene, like China, and less Western self-confidence about the value of democracy, growing discussion of whether really it is appropriate after all 20 years into this way in a number of countries, and fear about violence that elections can produce, and so forth. So Africa policy is one part of this larger trend, and in fact, the bottom is rather well. That leads me to my final comments, which are the comparative perspective. I'd like to break with the frequent tendency of African studies. I don't have a choice because I'm not an African specialist, so I'm breaking by necessity. And try not to treat Africa as a case in and of itself. There's a common tendency among African regional specialists and everything to sort of zero in on the region and not see it in a broader light. And ask a couple of questions about is what I've described is rather a messy picture of Western democracy support in Africa typical of Western democracy support in other regions, or is it, is it different in some ways? Let me ask, focus in on a couple of questions. What might make it different in Africa compared to other regions? First, Africa has a higher level of aid dependency than any other region of the world. And it's really striking when you're in donor circles. Uh, and people are talking about development assistance, often unconsciously they're talking about development assistance in Africa. So imbued are they with the idea that Africa has become the natural home of development assistance in a way that they actually conflate the development assistance agenda with the development assistance in Africa. So Africa is highly independent, not all of them. And other things, but the significant parts of it. And how does high aid dependency affect the democracy? And in what way, you know, what's, what's the effect? That's certainly distinctive about Africa. It has complicated effects, um, which are neither necessarily positive or negative, and they cut in different ways. First, it, it has led African governments to be more subject to political conditionality, aid conditionality, than any other region because they have aid dependency and can try to impose conditionality. Uh, not in place that country, but certainly in a number of other countries. And so first, the use of aid conditionality is really an African story, and the study of aid conditionality is an African story. Secondly, the high level of aid allows donors to commit much larger resources than most other places, except for the special cases like Iraq or Afghanistan, where there's really huge aid pouring into them. Africa, you see a willingness to mount programs that you just wouldn't see elsewhere. If you look at the European effort with the elections in the DRC, you won't see those kind of budgets in Latin America. That kind of system going on in Latin America. There's, there's no interest in that that kind of money in any Latin American country. Or for that matter, and pretty much you would see in the of the Soviet Union, certainly no longer exceptions to Europe and so forth. So you see independency leading to projects the size of which are, are startling. Uh, but that cuts different ways. You can say, well, therefore, you can do the more democracy assistance. But of course, there is the negative side effect, which is that aid is kind of de-democratized in certain ways, because it undercuts the accountability of state institutions, which are suddenly reporting to Western donor agencies rather than to their own people. And the anti-democratic effects of high aid dependency are certainly as strong as spending a lot more on democracy assistance. In addition, because of the aid dependency, and because of these large budgets in some countries, and because of the poverty, you have the issue in Africa, which has not been raised so much elsewhere, although you could, uh, Wait a minute, isn't democracy assistance financing forms of political life that are probably not economically sustainable in the countries in which they're being carried out? So if you look at the cost of multi-party elections in most African countries, they can't afford them. But they can't afford the kind of elections that Western donors 
fund the first time or two and then say, now it's your turn to do this. The, the level of technological investment is too high. Computers, paper, communications, logistics, and so forth. The civil society sectors are held up and don't support. The kinds of organizations that let the funders like and require for accounting purposes, generally understanding resources, and so forth. So in Africa, more than anywhere else, you really see a question about the sort of uh, white elephant style of democracy and whether or not the entire panoply of democracy programs in Africa are sitting on an unsustainable crust in a way that they're not so much in, say, Poland, uh, Chile, or other places where they were carried So independence is one distinct development we have to study. Another is the, the high level of poverty in Africa, as well as other socio-political conditions like the intense degree of tribalization of organized politics, the fact that most political parties keep down at the tribal orientation for links or affiliations, and the general weakness of the state. Without sort of painting the picture too dramatically, one could argue that socio-politically Africa is still somewhat distinct from the rest of the world in this combination of high level poverty, very high level of state weakness, and tribalization of political organization. How does that affect the systems for democracy support? Well, it has led the Western community to engage in more debates about sequencing in Africa than in Europe. The whole sequencing debate about, oh, no, no, hold off on supporting democracy, just support economic development in the state for 10 or 20 or 30 years, and then down the road of German democracy. That's really an Africa. Uh, you don't hear. I mean, it was an Asian debate for a while, but it's become an Africa. And that's where it's playing out. That's where privately meet with the development minister, he or she may turn to you and say, you're a democracy expert. Shouldn't Africa really just wait 20 years? I don't say that in public, but I can tell you to say it. Um, <coughs> when Kenya has post-electoral violence after 2007, both in foreign ministries and in aid agencies, there's a lot of talk of we're just pushing the democracy agenda too quickly in the region that's not ready. And this concept of not ready, it's not something you can say anymore in most other regions. If you go to Latin America and say to a Latin American, I don't think you're ready. No, I actually don't like hearing. And, uh, and the same is true if you were to say it in Asia and so forth. But in Africa, that is still said, not always publicly, but there is still an eternal debate about should we be doing this at all or not. You don't find so much in other regions. A little bit in the Middle East and the Arab world because of the concern about Islam particularly. So there are some distinctive features about the support after based on the distinctive features of that. What about the seriousness of the West and the, the overall place of democracy in Western policy compared to its place in Western policies in other regions? How does Africa stack up? Well, in the 1990s, it was pretty striking that actually, in general, in painting with a very broad brush, Western donors were more serious about at least trying with democracy in Africa than they were in most other places, because they did have so few countervailing interests in the 90s. They really, it seemed like a, 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 you know, not much reason not to do this in Africa. Whereas in the Arab world in the 90s, there was very little interest. In the former Soviet Union, in Central Asia, there were a lot of countries interests. East Asia, there was still the Asian miracle of the idea really at the time, and so forth. In Africa, the 90s, democracy was actually relatively high, I would argue, compared to the 
this decade is it's gone back to the somewhere around the mean. And the rise of the counterterrorism agenda, the rise of the oil agenda, the presence of the Chinese in different ways has moved Africa back to a place where now I would say that sort of the degree of seriousness of, of what the West and Africa is back down to about where it is with most other regions, which is not all that for me. Uh, and so the suspicion that you get among both African political elites and sort of the informed public that has connection with Western policies about the Western agenda in Africa is equally high and with basically with good reason. I mean, I, I just to tell one anecdote. I mean, uh, when I was doing research in Zambia years ago, Western civil society's work that day, I was interviewing this woman who was head of a women's NGO, who uh, had received a lot of Western support. It was a kind of NGO in our education, a wonderful women's NGO did all the same things that she was and some of the interviewers talked about various things, and we were talking, and I said, I'm just curious, why do you think all of these Westerners, like me, keep talking to your office, and a lot of them are giving you money? Why did you do that? She said, yeah, I quite wondered about that, because I quite a lot of money. Why people, she can, she's a successful. And she said, well, you know, the British, they're all over here, she said. They used to control our copper mines. And I think they want them back. <laughs> and I said, wow, it's a really long-term and sneaky